It's about valuing cultural diversity and understanding that everyone's experiences are not the same. So, and although, yes, Black and Asian people are ethnic minorities in the UK, they don't view and experience the world in the same way. And understanding that would be key to um, improving equality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law, or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This podcast is brought to you by Feed Ignite. Welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name's Camilla and I'm going to be your host for today. Following the death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police officers and the protests in the US and UK that followed, the student lawyer team has been considering ways that we can use this platform to fight against inequality and racism. One of the steps that we are taking is to create this podcast episode, which we hope will go some way towards helping shine a light on the deep-rooted injustices that exist in society. So today I am joined by Destiny Okongu, a current LPC master's student. Destiny has kindly agreed to come onto the podcast to discuss institutional racism and the key issues at hand. So welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So would you like to tell the listeners a bit about your background in terms of the research you've done around institutional racism in society and inequality and diversity in the legal profession? Okay, so for my undergraduate degree, my dissertation was on institutional racism and specifically right. how um, society could probably resolve such issues. Predominantly looked at using the law of negligence to tackle it. But before doing that, it kind of explored what institutional racism means as a concept distinct from racism, which is more of an umbrella term. And then I, I also looked at examples within society of how institutional racism has been shown and demonstrated, specifically in our society in the UK. And then for my master's project, which I just recently submitted, that looked at diversity and inclusion in the legal profession. So in general, so as well as looking at issues of ethnic, like issues ethnic minority solicitors have faced in trying to enter the profession, and institutional racism lies underneath that. Um, it also looked at different forms of inequality, such as the gender pay gap, um, social mobility issues, and how gender, gender sex, race, and also sexual orientation, how people from with those specific characteristics do tend to suffer inequalities compared to other demographics. Would you be able to expand on the actual issues involved in relation to institutional racism and the inequalities that exist? Yeah, sure. So institutional racism, I think a good starting point would probably be the Stephen Lawrence case. That actually even happened before I was born even. But um, if you've never heard of it, I would recommend looking into it and reading it because it's a very insightful case. Um, However, just to summarise, Basically, Stephen Lawrence was murdered. Um, it was a racially motivated murder by um, a group of white boys. So that in itself was the racism prevalent. However, the police's conduct in trying to solve the case and bring justice, um, that demonstrates the institutional racism within the Metropolitan Police. And that led to um, an inquiry by William McPherson, which basically gave us a really concise definition of what institutional racism actually means. And that was basically the first time 
although we do, we have heard of institutional racism before, sorry, that was kind of the first time that such an issue had been like deep deep dived in within our society, um, or within the UK specifically. And for those who don't particularly know what institutional racism is, it's basically the collective failure of an organisation. An organisation here was the Metropolitan Police, but that could be anything such as the NHS, it could be um, the legal profession, it could be the education system. But basically it's the failure of an organisation collectively to provide an appropriate professional service to people. And this is due to the colour of their skin or their cultural or ethnic origin. And that disadvantage is manifested in the processes and attitudes and behaviours. And often it comes from unwitting prejudice and ignorance and thoughtlessness. And a lot of the time it's based on racist stereotyping, which is very prevalent in our society. And it's those elements that form institutional racism where it's the institution itself that is racist, the institution is producing those racist outcomes. So, for example, in a hypothetical situation, if there was not a racist person in the United Kingdom, there still would be racism because the way our systems have been built in this country still produce racist outcomes. So that's, so I think that's an important thing to understand from the start, that it doesn't mean our oh, X is racist or Y is racist. For some people, they find it a trigger word to be called racist. And that in itself is a problem because it can often like act as a defence mechanism. So you're reluctant to open up and understand what the issues at play are. But there's different ways that like we've seen institutional racism and inequalities um, in the UK. I think one of the key ones, especially one of the ones I've looked into and researched um, for my dissertation was stop and search. So stop and search is basically the powers the police have to stop someone and then search them basically if they have generally you'd need um reasonable cause um, to search someone okay a lot of the time the reasons could be for drugs or if there's a weapon or stolen property but basically although on paper it seems like a fair way to try and deter crime it's been disproportionately used against ethnic minorities so black people and asian people specifically are stopped and searched a lot more than white people specifically actually in terms of drug stop and searches black people are actually almost nine times more likely to be stopped and searched for drugs than white people however the find rate so um this was a study by shana et al um so the find rate a study by i didn't catch that oh no worries i'm shana et al okay um it was conducted to it was published two years ago um so basically, they found that black people are almost nine times more likely to be stopped and searched for drugs than white people. However, the find rate, which um, means basically how often a stop and search results in a person being found in possession of drugs. So that find rate was actually lower for black people than white people. So if there wasn't institution racism within stop and search as a police power, you would expect the find rate to be higher for black people than white people because they are significantly more likely to be stopped and searched. Um, and unfortunately, then that kind of has a domino effect because um, that institution racism and that racist stereotyping is still there and it goes further down the system into like prosecution and arrests. So black people are then also more likely to be arrested for stop and search um, after being stopped and searched, sorry, than white people. And then also, they're also more likely to be prosecuted. They're actually eight times more likely to be prosecuted for drug offences. And that's, a, that's one of the key issues um, that we've seen in our society where institutional racism has been really, really rife. 
it's a lot of the time it's stereotyping. So the police might see, for example, a black person in a tracksuit and think, oh, this person might have drugs on them, as opposed to maybe a white man in a suit. But then having said that, there's research that does show that a lot of the time clothing isn't even the reason. For example, a black man in a suit or a black man in a nice car, they're often racially stereotyped or, pre- or like they receive prejudice just because of the colour of their skin. So it is quite deep-rooted. And there's also even more recent, although this is still a recent issue, sorry, there are like really, really recent examples of this. So if you look at the healthcare system, for example, a report was published very recently, I think it was the like within the last two weeks, give or take, about the death rates among different ethnicities um, from COVID-19. But basically it found that Black and Asian people are significantly more likely to die from COVID-19. However, this isn't a genetic reason. Black and Asian people aren't more genetically predisposed to die from COVID-19. Like that isn't the case and there isn't research that um, confirms that. There has been research and findings into the fact that like, are black people and Asian people getting the same level of care that white people receive? Are black and Asian people more likely to be on the front line in the NHS? There are findings that kind of showed that is the case. A lot of the time when black women, when they receive healthcare, so for example, a GP and they present their symptoms, they're often seen as inflating or exaggerating their symptoms. And that can often lead to them not receiving the adequate care or treatment that they require. And studies have actually shown and demonstrated that. But that might not be a conscious act of racism, but it could just be the unconscious bias within healthcare professionals, um, which is obviously deep-rooted and it's shaped on the way we view Black women within our society. So that's a generic example of how the healthcare system does suffer from institutional racism. But as I was saying prior, the COVID-19, the death rate amongst Black and Asian people that died from COVID-19 is like it's disproportionate compared to white people so it really doesn't make sense yeah uh, I think all the all the figures that you have shared in relation to the stop and search and into in relation to COVID-19 they just don't really seem to add up so I think it really does highlight that there there is something that's going wrong so Destiny in relation to the education system, um, do you think that there are any are there any examples of, of institutional um, inequality that that you that you could share with us? I think there are a few examples actually. As a generic example, um, black graduates are two times more likely to be unemployed than white graduates, even though they might have the same qualifications and the same level of experience. Um, so that just demonstrates the extra hurdles they've faced, even though they've even though they've gone that extra mile to gain a higher education. So that in itself does show some inequality because why is it that maybe black graduates aren't reaching a certain stage in the employment process? Or why is it that their CVs are being turned out? And there's been a bit, there's been quite a bit of research into that. And for example, a few firms and a few companies are now trying to introduce blind recruitment where key part key information such as a person's name or their educational background are redacted because um, yeah. it's been found that those in, those key pieces of information can influence whether that's consciously or consciously um, it can influence recruiters decisions and whether they should be invited for interview just a basic example someone's surname if someone's surname doesn't sound maybe of white origin or of British origin, that could negatively affect that candidate. Scrolling as well, 
even though a student might have performed really well, they might have not been able to attend a top university, which are, which stems from issues going backwards into the education system, such as at GCSEs and A-levels, like where did they find themselves geographically in terms of how deprived their environment was or how affluent the environment was. And those key factors would have obviously affected where they reached at university, and they might have even peaked in university and were able to perform. But the fact they might not have gone to a top university could instantly prejudice that candidate. And it's just keeping right. like that. And also, with a more relevant example, I'd say is um, with the COVID-19 pandemic that we're going through currently, um, I'm sure like our listeners are aware that GCSEs and A-levels were cancelled. So that means that they will be awarded their grades. Um, however, there's been quite a few discussions that and concerns that Black and Asian students might be awarded lower grades than they would have achieved if they actually sat those exams. And that's due to, well, it's due to quite a few factors, but just like racist stereotyping, maybe like not necessarily thinking that Black people aren't as smart, but maybe the way they're perceived, like, oh, if they're seen as loud and aggressive, are they going to be able to concentrate and read? would they have been able to sit down and read and study hard to get those grades? And it's those really small, minute, they're not actually small and minute, but they often are seen as small and minute, but then they can lead to larger consequences. So that's a key issue that definitely needs to be addressed because it's not fair that just because they weren't able to sit their exams, they should they might get lower grades than they would have achieved. And yes, understandably, that is the case for every student in this situation. However, Black and Asian students are more likely to be disadvantaged by the current system. Yes, I read somewhere actually that um, black and ethnic minority students are often awarded grades which are actually lower than the grades they go on um, to achieve. Yeah. So I think this really highlights that during the COVID pandemic when teachers are um, basing grades off of predicted grades that this is likely to cause um, further inequality. So I definitely, yeah, that's a that's a huge issue. Definitely, yeah. So, um, Destiny, I just uh, I just wanted to clarify a few things um, as you're going through. A few things kind okay. of jumped out at me, and that was the fact that you know there wasn't an investigation after the Stephen Lawrence murder, and that resulted in the, the yeah the McPherson inquiry. Um, I mean, it doesn't really sound like much has happened since then. Mm-hmm. That was twenty years ago. Um, did what did the McPherson inquiry do? Um, so basically, at the end, he gave a list of recommendations for the Metropolitan Police to look into and to try and implement. Um, there were actually, I believe, around 70 recommendations. Okay. Um, they looked at different areas um, to try and change the perceptions and like make things better. Uh, so one of the key things I'd say was like the definition of a racist incident. And basically, the definition should now be... Um, a racist incident is an incident that a person has perceived to be racist by the victim or any other person. So then that that basically shifts the perception and it's not what the police think is racist, it's what that victim has thought is racist. So if that person has then perceived whatever has happened to them to be a racist incident, then it should now be seen as a racist incident. And I think the purpose of that it's just so there's no question or query. And so if it's a racist incident, the Metropolitan Police or any police force, in fact, should then tackle that incident with that mentality. And obviously, it's a bit difficult to say whether that's been implemented or not, because you'd say a few police forces have, but when stop and search rates keep increasing, 
Another key area I think um, that McPherson identified was about victims and witnesses. So when the Met Police were doing their investigation, um, the Lawrence family and other key witnesses, like Stephen Lawrence's friend that was there at the scene, they were treated as they were treated almost as suspects. Um, so there was a lack of victim support and care, and that was something that was identified and condemned in the report. So another recommendation was that police services should, like together with the Home Office, develop guidelines as to the handling of victims or witnesses, particularly in the field of racist incidents and crime. So in other words, there needs to be an adequate system of victim support. So they shouldn't be seen as suspects. They should be seen as people that have also been part of this crime that need to be looked after and cared for. Whether there's been improvements in this um, is also something that's up for debate because when racist incidents and crimes continually occur and they're not prosecuted with due diligence and prosecuted as quickly as possible, it's hard to say that the victims are being supported. Definitely. It's, yeah, I think it is di- it's difficult to measure, I, I, sus- I expect. Um, difficult to know whether they are following those guidelines. Definitely, yeah. And I think the final area I'd want to draw on, um, there were 70, but just one more to pick pick apart would be racism awareness and valuing cultural diversity. So that really just tackles um, the issues of not being able to understand different people's viewpoints and perspectives. Because if you're in a system or if you're in an institution that's very Eurocentric, but you're operating in a society that's very diverse culturally and ethnically. The police force needs to be able to understand that. Primarily, they should represent population um, and really the police force should be diversified. However, there should be um, cultural training in terms of understanding certain things. So you don't think, oh, okay, this person is being aggressive when they're really not being aggressive. So this would entail training the police force to understand um, the importance of cultural diversity and I think that would help tackle in the racist stereotypes that they might have unconsciously um, definitely for some officers it is a conscious act of racism but for some people admittedly it's unconscious bias where those perceptions have been shaped by society so if we're able to challenge those perceptions to see that oh okay maybe they're wearing these clothes because that's their culture or maybe they're speaking like this because that's their culture that could change the viewpoint that oh they're a threat to society or they're a threat to their neighbours. Um, yeah. And I think those things have definitely contributed to um, overt racism and also um, institutional racism. To bring more awareness to that, um, as Ms. McPherson said in his report, I think is something that would be critical. And I don't think enough has been done because if enough has been done, we'd be a lot further into racial equality. And from recent events, we've also seen that's not the case. Um, with racism awareness and actually valuing cultural diversity specifically, that definitely can be um, applied to um, other institutions within our society. So politics and parliament, for example, like the current government, one of, it was a Sky News correspondent, she was interviewing Matt Hancock, the health secretary, and she asked yeah. him, um, how many black people do you have in your cabinet? And obviously it was Amin and Arin, and when he finally decided to give a straightforward answer, he actually named Asian members of the can- of his cabinet, sorry. And then he mentioned, I think he used one of those collective terms, I think it was BAME or BME. And then the news correspondent came back and said, I asked specifically about black, um, how many black people you have in your cabinet that um, you've just named 
like the Home Secretary, you've named the Chancellor, um, who are Asian people. Um, so he couldn't really give an answer. And afterwards, it was like shown that there was not a single black person in the cabinet. So I, re- I raised that example because it's about valuing cultural diversity and understanding that everyone's experiences are not the same. So and although, yes, black and Asian people are ethnic minorities in the UK, they don't view and experience the world in the same way. And understanding that would be key to um, improving equality. Yeah. So do you th- do you almost think that that BAME umbrella is just not helping? I think I think the term can be is a bit problematic. Yes, it doesn't help because it it puts everyone in one bracket and it like it collects everyone's experiences and people don't have the same experiences. Um, yes, black people and Asian people face racism in this country, but they face it in very different ways. Black people are more likely to be perceived as a threat. Um, black people more likely to be stopped and searched. There are other elements where um, Asian people are discriminated against and in the way that people view them in society, um, racist stereotypes. So with the McPherson report, do you think that the focus was more on trying to get people to not look objectively, but trying to put their put themselves into the play, like into the shoes of a of an ethnic minority or trying to be more subjective but actually that doesn't go far enough because they didn't try and eliminate the unconscious bias or do you think there was any any focus on unconscious bias back then do you think that's more of a new thing that people are starting to understand but not enough has been done I think um yes as in there was discussions well there wasn't really discussions on conscious bias it was more spoken as unwitting prejudice Okay. are definitely links to unwitting prejudice and unconscious bias. Um, I agree with what you're saying that unconscious bias is something that's been discussed a lot more now, which is yeah. a good thing. However, I would say there were elements of that discussion in his report, which was reflected in the term unwitting prejudice, which was part of the definition of institutional racism. But that discussion has definitely evolved over the past 20 years or so. However, we need to carry on that discussion um, I took part in a very interesting Zoom call the other day mm-hmm. with someone on my LinkedIn who is an expert in communication mm-hmm. and a police officer. Um, and before that, he's done another, uh, you know, various other jobs that involve um, being a good communicator. And he has been holding a series of uh, Zoom calls to try and help people to improve their communication skills. Um, and it was really interesting because he got us to, to draw a box on a piece of paper. And then he said, okay, draw a circle on top of the box. And everyone's everyone drew something different. Everybody drew something different. And he said that that was because our perception of on is different. Everyone's perception of on is different. So I think relating that to what we're saying now about unconscious bias, people wouldn't necessarily, like that seems like a really straightforward exercise, draw a circle and a and a box yeah but people can't even agree on the same definition of what on means so I think that really kind of um contributes to the to the uh discussion that we're having now about people maybe not necessarily understanding the prejudices that they have yeah the the prejudices that they might have but they they don't realize that they have so it's just an interesting anecdote that I kind of wanted to share and it's being able to um just to add once that unconscious bias has been brought to the conscious state, it's then knowing how to respond and tackle it. So it 
like just to improve yourself and to improve your actions. Yeah, thank you for being so specific in relation to those issues. Um, do you, what do you think about how the system can address these issues? How do you think we can try and resolve this? Um, I think one of the key ways to tackle these these issues is through education and primarily about decolonizing the curriculum. I know a lot of people I've spoken to, if you look at what you studied in history and what you studied in English, a lot of it is very Western and Eurocentric. Um, in terms of the history curriculum, although the government have said that um, schools have the choice of what they can teach, as long as it fits within like the generic umbrella of what they've prescribed, a lot of schools yeah. are failing to teach black history or teach history about colonialism and imperialism that have shaped modern Britain. I'm sure you've heard, but a lot of people think, okay, the UK isn't racist or isn't as bad as the States. And that's been going around social media a lot. But I believe that that perception is there because a lot of people haven't been educated on what Britain as a country have done before. For example, colonisation, um, the Windrush scandal. Um, oh, right, yeah. When you need, when this country needed people to come and rebuild the economy, when they needed them to fight in the wars, that's not been taught well at all. The slave trade, for example, a lot of schools are not taught about the slave trade and Britain's impact in that. So I believe yeah. that if the curriculum um, if there was more black history in the curriculum, and not just black history, but history from like um, Asian history as well, for example, the influence of India um, or the role of India rather in the British Empire, because India was often seen as a crown jewel within the British Empire. So I'd say that if that history was taught more in schools, people would better understand why racism exists and acknowledge that there are parts of society that are still racist. Yeah, I agree, definitely. Because it's almost like erasure, you're erasing people's um, experiences. And when people say things like, oh, um, slavery was a long time ago, um, the effects are still here till today. So I think that's definitely a key way to address that issue. And not just even learning about history, but also celebrating black culture as well. In English and in English literature, most, like I studied English literature up until A level, most of the books I read for the seven years of um, education were by white authors. Most of them actually by white male authors, but generic, generally, sorry, most of them were by white authors. If you decolonise your bookshelf, you'd be able to gain a wider understanding of different cultures. And even if you wanted to keep the authors British, there are so many Black and Asian British authors um, that should be celebrated. Or if you were reading books from other cultures, um, there are so many African-American writers that have done so many great works. Yes, I personally have studied a few in school, but that was like a fraction. And I know even me studying like maybe uh, my Angelo's poetry, I did that in year 12. So that was at A-level and that was obviously optional. But I know even then there are people that studied English at A-level that wouldn't have studied anything like that. So I think tackling the curriculum and specifically in history and English would help. But also things like PSHE, for example, like a lot of the time we focus on things like drugs and pregnancy, which are very important things to tackle and to address. Um, however, you could like also have workshops on like anti-racism, for example, and like tools to make you not just not racist, but an anti-racist. Um, and that also can apply to other things in terms of gender equality as well. So those active tours you can take, which could be, which could happen, definitely I think it should happen from year 7 to 11. But when you're like in sit form, it could be more practical. It's in the tools that, 
like the tools we'd need for progressing into society being that like at university or in the employment sector but yeah I think from the start point but I think the starting point would be education definitely I mean I was just kind of thinking as you were talking and I think the perception that you get from school or what I can kind of remember is that in terms of history we were just taught you know the Tudors and then same that that's all I can really remember I think yeah. the world war ii yeah that's it that's all I really remember I dropped I didn't take it for um did I do a GCSE honestly I don't even remember I did it no I did it but then that shouldn't matter because you should be taught these things in year seven to nine exactly but I think that the point I'm trying to make is um you just think of slavery is an american thing exactly i think the british monarchy is overtaught in this country like we teach yeah we teach about the tudors henry the eighth and his six wives exactly um the great fire of london 1066 yeah. battle of hastings um Sorry. nazi germany so nazi germany is part of history we teach that isn't british but it's kind of british as well because in world yeah II. but these are histories that virtually everyone has taught over and over again and I'm not saying that we should get rid of them, but I'm just saying that um, our history should be diversified. Because how many British monarchs do we need to study? Because I know I studied a lot from primary school and in secondary school. I agree, yeah. I remember doing the Tudors twice. Exactly. And And if we do study, like, Black history, a lot of the time it's American. So the civil rights movement, I personally didn't study that, but I know a lot of people have. So again... It's the erasure of black Britishness, which has definitely contributed to perceptions in our society that we are racially equal. Because I think that sometimes it does appear that we are, but if you actually look into it, like we're really not. And for some people, you don't even need to look into it because it's just obvious and it happens and they experience it on a daily basis. I think that um, if you don't point it out to everyone, then not not everyone's going to notice that the curriculum is missing. Mm-hmm. Um, very important, very important pockets of history that would highlight the fact that there are inequalities. Um, so I definitely agree with you that the yeah the curriculum should really be changed because just learning about the the Tudors and 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 the wars. You know, I'm sure there are other things taught that was, but um, yeah, just learning about certain topics is not going to help us get a wider understanding of of history so yeah yeah, I think you agree so let's zoom in on the legal industry because I know that you've just um, completed your master's project in um, in relation to diversity and um, inequality in the legal industry so um, what do you think the key issues are in relation to that Um, I think there are a range of issues but um, I'll highlight a couple so I'll start with gender inequality Um, so Specifically within the solicitor's profession, 49% of solicitors are women. So yeah, you would say, oh, okay, the, um, there's gender equality there. But if you actually look into it, there is a lack of opportunities that women face that men have. For example, there's a lack of women in senior roles. There are significantly less female partners in law firms. And you'd think that um, the level of female partners should roughly correspond with the number of female solicitors that there are. However, the higher up you go on the career ladder, the less women there are. And also we do have an issue of the gender pay gap, which basically means that it's the difference in how much men are paid and how much women are paid. 
and women are paid less than men. And that's prevalent in so many professions, but it's also there in the legal industry. So those are examples of how there is still gender inequality, even though on face value, you might say, oh, okay, 49% of women are solicitors, or 49% of solicitors, sorry, are women. And also, when women then go on to have children, they're even, they face even more obstacles. A lot of the time, they have to take, take time off work, even when they might not want to. And that often comes from gender stereotyping, where men either don't want to, or they're perceived that they shouldn't take paternity leave. And that indirectly discriminates women because it means that, that for example, um, in a heterosexual relationship, and obviously acknowledging not all relationships are between a man and a woman, then this example I'm about to give, due to gender, gender stereotyping, a lot of men aren't comfortable taking paternity leave, or if they are comfortable, they're not allowed to take paternity leave for as long as they'd wish, which then means that women are indirectly discriminated against because they're forced to take maternity leave for longer, even if they would have wanted to go back to work. And that's an issue in itself because it gives women less opportunities to progress their careers. And one of the reasons that um, the gender pay gap exists is because there's a lack of women in senior roles. So in theory, the higher you go up the social ladder, the higher your pay goes. But there are more men at the top and there's a disproportionate amount of men at the top. so that has um, exacerbated the gender pay gap. Um, so those are issues, I think, in terms of gender equality that definitely needs to be addressed. In terms of um, race, generally speaking, on face value, like for women, you could say that the legal profession is racially diverse because it kind of corresponds with the proportions of ethnic minorities in the general population. However, um, there's an underrepresentation of ethnic minority solicitors in mid to large, large firms. and By that, I include black people, Asian people, people from um, mixed races, and then also um, people from other ethnic minority groups. They are all underrepresented in mid to large firms and also in corporate firms. And I specifically highlight corporate firms because generally speaking, corporate law firms, there is a higher earning potential than in other areas of law, such as private client work or criminal law work. But then you will see large amounts of black and Asian solicitors that work in criminal law and that work in private client um, law firms as opposed to corporate law firms. And that's a problem in itself because, of course, there's nothing wrong with working in those areas of law. However, it means that those solicitors that do want to work in corporate law firms do find it harder. And it questions why um, there is an image of corporate law firms, a city law firm. It's very almost white-centric, to say the least. And in terms of earning potential, um, as I mentioned, you're more likely to earn more money in corporate law firms than in other areas of law. And that kind of leads into my next point of social mobility. It almost keeps Black and Asian solicitors and other ethnic minority solicitors in the same socioeconomic status, because if they're not able to move up that socioeconomic ladder, if they're not able to work in certain firms where where they might be able to earn more money, they're almost capital locked into where they are and it makes it extremely hard for them to progress definitely i I read something um a few weeks ago i think it was that out of the magic circle law firms Mm -hmm. i think something like just six out of 800 partners in the uk are black and i was really shocked by that i know i read something like that too actually there's yeah because 
Yeah, I know it's awful. Um, I don't know if you saw. I don't know if you saw basically how a lot of law firms were releasing statements in response to Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd about how they um, condemn those acts and how they promote diversity and inclusion. And of course, the Magic um, Circle law firms all did that. And you'd see on their websites where they talk about diversity and inclusion. Although a lot of the time it does seem like very generic statements. The reason I highlight that is because one of those Magic Circle law firms specifically, I think it's an article in the Times, they have 194 UK partners. And of that 194, only one of them is black. But it really does question if you're releasing statements saying that you are diverse and inclusive, you believe that black lives matter. Do you truly believe Black Lives Matter if you only have one Black partner out of 194 in the UK? Because um, that's a gross underrepresentation. So it's almost like an act of tokenism, really, where you're trying to be perceived as a good thing, as like promoting equality. But if you look into it, you're not really. Yeah, I think diversity can almost be one of those buzzwords that seems to yes. be... Yeah. around quite a lot by firms um so I would just maybe look a bit deeper than actually you know the promotional material that mm-hmm. firms are handing out and actually look at, look at the numbers oh yeah so I think I mentioned social mobility earlier and there are so many factors that pl- um, tie into this but one thing I'd like to highlight is educational background of solicitors often impacts where they find themselves in terms of which law firms that they end up working in or if they even work in the legal industry. And I'll give an example. Like in the UK, only 7% of the population went to a fee-paying school, so a private school. Yeah. However, if you look at um, how many lawyers in the UK that went to a fee-paying school, 21% of lawyers went to a fee-paying school. So that's a massive overrepresentation compared to 7%. It questions if you're trying to be diverse and inclusive, how come a large percentage of people all come from the same educational bracket? And then 23% of partners, they also enter fee paying school. So already from before you've entered university, you've already got that hurdle of, okay, so what, 93% of the UK population went to, had a state education, sorry. So those 93% are already set back before adding any other factors, for example, gender, race, sexual orientation. So that's something that needs to be addressed. Definitely. Um, and moving away from like law firms in, within the legal industry, if you look at the judicial system, that's really not diverse. Um, and I'll use the top court as an example because it is the most important court in the land. But the Supreme Court, um, so moving away from law firms, um, The judicial system is also an area that struggles with diversity and inclusion. And I'll use the Supreme Court as an example, which is the highest court in the land. So of the 12 judges, only two of them are women, and all 12 of them are white people. When the court was first established, there was only one judge that was a female. So even now having two female judges is a step forward, but it's still a massive underrepresentation. And the fact that they're all white, is extremely problematic and it's more problematic because it's the supreme court their rulings like are final basically um and their judgments have so much power and influence in our country and the reason i'm saying it's an issue is because yes the law is the law 
yes, on paper, it's black and white. However, the law is interpreted, and it's that interpretive, it's that interpretation, sorry, that's subjective. And interpretation comes from our understanding of the world. I'd say that key factors such as race, sex, gender, your socioeconomic background, sexual orientation, those are key things that shape that understanding that we have. So if you have 12 judges that are all from the same ethnic origin, that's problematic because when you get a case that maybe would specifically affect Black people, specifically affect Asian people, they don't necessarily have that cultural or social understanding or perspective. And like I'll give you an example, when abortion cases reach like the Supreme Court, it's extremely problematic for like a panel of mainly men, or sometimes if it's just men on the panel, because they don't always sit as 12. So there could be times where it's all men. Um, but it's problematic where certain cases that cannot affect a man physically are then being ruled by men. But yeah, um, I do have issue in the fact that men are ruling on women's reproductive rights without any yeah. understanding or influence from a female perspective. And I give that example because those kind of issues have happened and they do continue to happen. But the underlying issues of men ruling on abortion as an issue that specifically affects women, those underlying issues can also be translated in other areas where cases are going to the Supreme Court that affect specifically black people or cases that specifically um, affect the LGBTQ community. So I do think that we need to diversify the judges in general, especially the judges in the Supreme Court. So it's a so that interpretation of the law comes from a wider demographic. I completely agree. I, I just, I mean, before we started talking, I just had a quick look at the um, Supreme Court. And even just in terms of life experience, I mean, I'm sure they've all had very different life experiences, but many of them, I mean, a lot of them went to Oxford and Cambridge. So um, exactly. it, just, it just seems that they might not have had the same um, experiences as many other people in the country. So um, I think having a more diverse makeup of the the judges would help because, you know, someone could then step in and say, oh, no, you know, just give different perspectives that could lead to different outcomes on different cases. Um, I, I, think it, I guess it goes back to that un- unconscious bias and the fact that well, they probably are aware that they share a similar background, but they might not realise the full extent to which um, having a diverse judiciary could impact their decisions. So, Destiny, what do you think that the legal profession can do to address these issues? Um, I think it starts with change of the culture of the legal industry so it can be more diverse and inclusive. Um, and that can be done with an array of factors. But primarily, I think that recruiters within law firms, judges on the courts, and this even applies to officers in police forces, they really should be diversified to come from a different, like from a wider spectrum. And I say that because like research has shown that employers often recruit in their own image, um, which is known as affinity bias. So that's basically where you're recruiting people that remind you of yourself. And I'd say you could apply that to judges as well, because even though they're meant to be objective, there are some areas of law. In fact, not some areas of law. Interpretation of the law is known to be subjective. So that could, their own experiences could influence that interpretation, as I said earlier. Absolutely. 
Um, but yeah, so if you're recruiting, if you have um, judges and recruiters and officers from a wider demographic, um, to include people from different ethnicities, people with different sexual orientations, having more women, um, I think that would really help to create a more diverse and, and inclusive um, industry. Yeah. I think there are other small things that would be steps forward in making the legal industry more inclusive. Um, for example, law firms still address each other as dear sirs. So when they send out formal correspondences, so like letters or formal emails, it'd be like dear sirs. And I think that's a bit problematic, actually, because it kind of stems from the archaic viewpoint that law firms are solely made up, made up of men. And we've kind of developed and progressed in society where that isn't the case anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. As I said, 49% of lawyers are female. So I think that we need to look at adopting more gender inclusive terminology or maybe dear colleagues or dear counsel. And although that is a small thing, like it's not something that's going to actively make women more inclusive in society or within the legal industry, I'd say that it's a step forward, but firms shouldn't use that as an act of tokenism to say, oh, okay, we don't use dear sirs, therefore we're inclusive. I just think it's a small change that can be made, but obviously more things need to be done. Yeah, I think it's um, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like, if you just keep keep it dear, dear sirs, then it just carries on. Um, exactly. Deepening, you know, further creating this deep-rooted um, yeah. bias that's, I say unconscious, but it's, it's not really because it's there on the page. But yeah. it then creates it then creates this sort of norm that that is you know is that it doesn't seem right so I, I definitely agree that that's something to maybe start with although like you said that shouldn't be used as a tick box exercise um, as I mentioned earlier women are more disadvantaged in the legal industry when they have children more so than when they didn't have children and I think there are ways that we can tackle that for example, we could provide more flexibility regarding where you have to work. So like working from home. Because the legal industry, especially law firms, does have a culture of working in firms, especially the corporate industry, working in city firms and the high life. I think we need to move forward with that. So women aren't penalised for taking time off work to look after children. And by penalised, I mean that if they take time off work, they're less likely to have the opportunity to progress their careers. Unfortunately, that's the way it is in the legal industry. That then means that there's less women in senior roles, less women that are partners, and it just makes the gender pay gap worse. But if we were able to work from home, it would mean that where they can't get childcare, they'd be able to still continue their jobs without having to take time off. So they're not disadvantaged in that sense. So that's just having a flexible work from home policy. And of course, it would equally apply to men as well. But I just highlight women in this case because it's them that are uh, systemically disadvantaged in our society. And like the legal industry can be quite rigid to change and it takes time for the legal industry to adapt, especially in comparison to other professions. However, I'd say that like the COVID-19 pandemic currently has shown that law firms can successfully operate from home because law firms have been forced to. So they haven't had the choice or the, or the ability to debate whether working from home is a good thing. And they have been able to do so. So it kind of shows that after this pandemic like, has finished, or when it's subsided at least, that there are lessons that we can learn from this, where 
those firms could maybe look at having work from home policies because some firms do have work from home policies, others don't, or even the ones that do have such policies, they're not very flexible. So I think looking into that could be a step forward to try and to tackle that lack of opportunity. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I just, I'm, I'll be interested to see how, how it shapes the the future, really, this this pandemic. And I obviously think everybody's you know, curious to see what it what it will bring. But from a from a gender perspective, it will be really interesting to see whether it makes the situation any better. Definitely. I'd say when the legal industry tries to respond to these issues, they need to address the effect of intersectionality. And by intersectionality, I mean that certain groups experience disadvantage and discrimination differently, where they may face discrimination from different aspects, which kind of creates particularized forms of social oppression. To break it down, so in the legal industry, men benefit over women, so women are disadvantaged, so they face sex discrimination. But then if we look at how women are discriminated, if we then break that down even more, white women and ethnic minority women, especially black women within the legal industry, face discrimination differently because the latter also experience race discrimination. And reports by the Solicitor Regulation Authority, or rather they commissioned the report, sorry, um, it's shown that black women are worse off than white women in the legal industry. This report also showed that ethnic minority women are less likely to become partners, um, not only than white men and white women, but also than ethnic minority men. Right. So that demonstrates the effects of intersectionality, where ethnic minority women face disadvantage both from their gender and their ethnicity. So I'd say that when law firms approach tackling diversity and inclusion, or trying to rather promote it, they need to consider this because sometimes these policies that have been created have improved the situation, but they've still ignored some of the experiences certain groups face. So efforts to make, so for example, efforts to make the legal industry more gender inclusive and to promote gender equality. Um, yes, we're not there yet. However, the current improvements have favoured white women. So there has been an increase in female partners over the past couple of years. It's not where it should be, admittedly. There has been an increase in improvement. However, that improvement has favoured white women. There are still significantly less right. uh, minority women that are partners. So I just say that when policies are being created and when current practices are being adapted, those issues definitely need to be taken into account. I would be interested to see you know when when law firms are creating these policies or you know whatever organization is coming up with with these um solutions to to problems i just wonder whether the panel that are deciding what they're going to do is diverse or whether it does come from one demographic group exactly Um, yeah yeah Yeah. so that i think the same too because often it is one demographic it's the same issue we discussed about the Supreme Court judges, because it's not bringing to the table everybody's perspectives or a yeah. wider range yeah. of perspectives. Admittedly, yes, it would be hard to bring everybody's struggles to the table, but at least a wider range is feasible to implement. Definitely. So even though they might think they're doing the right thing and trying to make a positive change, 
the fact that they just don't have the they just don't have the understanding will limit the impact that they're able to make exactly yeah Thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing all of your research um, with us. It's It's been a huge eye-opener. No worries. Um, I just wanted to really, you know, just to round off the episode as we're kind of coming to a close, it, was there anything else that you just wanted to say before we before we wrap up? Um, I'd say that there has been improvements in the legal industry in terms of trying to make the culture more diverse and inclusive. However, yeah, yeah. I don't think enough has been done and even so, the improvements have been too slow paced. So I think that we need to tackle the fact that there's a lack of representation in the highly climbed the career ladder as a matter of urgency. Um, and when like these policies are being made and when issues are being decided and discussed, that we, we need a wider demographic of people at the table so more people's voices are heard. Agreed, yeah. So I definitely think that would be a step forward. Um, and generally as a society, I'd say that we need to educate ourselves more because if we are more educated, like it gives us a better understanding of why these issues prevail and how we can tackle them. Because if you don't understand why the issues that are at play exist, it's harder to respond to them. And that doesn't just apply to the legal industry, I think that applies to all other industries within our British society. So thank you again, Destiny, for coming on and sharing all the research that you've done um, and helping us to shine a light on these issues. We arranged to do this interview some time ago, a few weeks ago now, and I'm, I'm glad that we have waited. Um, I know that we waited to after you finished your master's. Um, and I'm really glad that we actually took a couple of weeks because... I think it's important to keep the conversation going. Definitely. I think it's actually quite good that we've waited because now it's like we're kind of carrying on the conversation rather than just kind of putting this out when social media was very active in relation to this. Yeah, yeah. So in light of that, if anyone would like to come onto the Student Life podcast to share any research or stories or just to carry on the conversation, then please do email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. Until next time, goodbye. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. We'd like to thank Felix Knight for producing this podcast today. Thank you.